Hey guys and welcome to Personality Bingo with me, your host, Tom Moran. So this week on the podcast we have the amazing Kevin Olihan. Kevin is an actor, he's a writer, he's a singer, he does loads of things. He's based out of Dublin at the moment. He's also touring all over the place, having just performed his uh, self-penned play, Cassowary, um, directed by Andreas de Stack at the Theatre Upstairs, uh, which we talk about uh, on the podcast, which was mainly rave reviews. Uh, a couple of bad ones, as is always the case, but we get into that on the podcast, which is fascinating, uh, as always. As well as that, you might know Kevin from uh, an amazing production of Spring Awakening uh, by the brilliant Ill-Advised Company again with Ill Advised. We collaborated on Fionn Foley's Fierce Notions back in the Fringe Festival uh, last year. And generally, Kevin's just doing uh, really cool stuff. And um, he's worked with Jedi Debris and Finbar Doyle on Cirque de Rev. And uh, yeah, loads of brilliant stuff. So go and check out what he's up to because he's always busy with something. Um, in other news, exciting stuff about the podcast. We have a Patreon page. It's exciting for me. It's bad news for you because I'm going to guilt you into throwing a few pennies my way. No, look, it's a very simple model. As Blind Boy says, it's a model based off soundness. And it's a very simple case of if you have a few bob to spare, it would mean the world if you were able to throw something our way. As always, the podcast will be free. This will never change. Um, but uh, after a 100 uh, and five episodes uh, it just kind of felt right to try and monetize something going into the new year so if you are in a position to throw something our way amazing it's massively massively appreciated literally if that only is one euro or two euro a month like i can't tell you how much of a difference that would make if we get a handful of people doing that i know that sounds overly simple but we've got well over uh, we've got thousands of listeners a month so at this point even if a few of you were in a place to do that i'd uh, appreciate it forever more uh, if not there's no worries at all we're going to keep doing it the same way as always but it's just something we're going to try out for the next while and the link is in the show notes so enough of that guys please enjoy the wonderful kevin olahan playing personality bingo with tom moore and ready to play personality bingo. Uh, ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> all right, sweet. Well, a uh, quick explanation of how it all works. I've got 60 minutes on the clock. I've got 60 balls in here and 60 corresponding questions. I've also given you a sheet of paper with five numbers on it. Would you do me a favour and read out the five? Okay. Nine. Yes. 19. Okay. 28. Lovely. 33. Gorgeous. And 51. Beautiful. Could you do me another favour and pick a sixth number, something between one and 60 that's not already there? <laughs> Between one and sixty, <laughs> it's like sixty-seven. No, failed straight away. Um, let's go with forty-two. Forty-two. Scribble that down yeah. for me. Number forty-two. Any reason? Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. Nice, man. You strike me as one of these people. Correct me if I'm wrong. Who will be good with like movie quotes? Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know what it is about like. It, that's kind of always been the case. I don't know what it is about my brain. It used to frustrate me a lot in school mm. uh, because it was like I could recite a movie off by heart from like sometimes even one viewing like and then couldn't apply that to schoolwork, you yeah. know. So that was that was why I was always into things like history and all and anything and classics, anything that was like a story that I could nearly put it into quotes mm. and then just trick my brain into taking it in. Yeah, it's so funny because I am not like that at all. Really? Yeah, I'm so shit with movie quotes. Like in terms of learning lines, I've... Yeah, how are you with scripts? Because that's always I try to translate it over to that, like with actors. Totally. I've gotten there. Yeah, I've gotten there. But I think I, this this could be... 
a prejudice of mine, but I think I might need a little bit of work than other people would. You know the way there's these people who come in and like they'll they won't they'll learn their lines during rehearsals. Yeah. Like I'm not one of those p- people. I'll have to go home and do another two hours, like most nights, to get off book. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Which is fine, but oh, it's, yeah. I'm very jealous of the people who go in and like after the read through, they're like, I think I've got about seventy percent <laughs> of that. You know, you're like the jammy bastards. You yeah. Bastards. Um, A big one always is as well that like I'm terrible for losing things. Mm. So I've usually lost my script by week two anyway. <laughs> so like I better have it off by that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that, well, that's a pretty good motivation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the clock's ticking. Yeah, big time. Um, and yeah, I should also say that if uh, all six of those numbers do come out, that means the tables are turned and you get to ask me any question in the whole wide world. Okay. All right, sweet. Uh, we Has anyone s- got it? No, not yet. Still. A hundred. Wow. You, you were episode 104. Oh my God. No one's got it. It's been gotten to five. Some people are whitewashed, but no one has actually oh, got it. Oh, so close. So, yeah, so close, but so far, right? Yeah. Hopefully you'll be, well, ho- yes. I say hopefully. I, I kind of actually do want someone to get it because like, I'm like, what's the worst thing someone could ask? Yeah, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Like, I know. Have the, the yeah, we nearly need of. to like, we nearly need to be like, okay, you won and then give you a week to go away, come back in, <laughs> ask the question, do another yeah, whole yeah. hour long podcast on the question. Um, you have done a switch around, haven't you? You've done one where you've been interviewed, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, it's, it's one of the least popular episodes <laughs> no one listened to it honestly it's really unpopular like most episodes have like you know however many thousand downloads the, the, I don't if this has a thousand like that's it which is fine and it definitely does have a thousand but I mean like it's it's but it's not even in the top 50 which is wildly insulting that is so funny <laughs> it's just like yeah no one cares and I thought and I thought it was yeah I thought it was great I had like all these plans I was like oh Tom Moran plays with himself and all this stuff and everyone's like fuck off no one cares we like your guests you're a prick oh, oh that's amazing yeah Anyway, look, you're here, so hopefully people will listen to you. Yes, please. No, you're so way yeah. less interesting. <laughs> right, let's give it a spin. Whoa. Jesus. Firing out the gate, we have number seven. Do you have it? No. No worries, That's number fair. seven. The question is, oh, right in there. What is an achievement you're most proud of? Oh, um, I suppose most recently the show I did in Theatre Upstairs, mm-hmm. Cassowary, um, because that was the first full-length thing I'd written mm-hmm. um, myself, and you've obviously written stuff yourself, you know, like there's nothing more terrifying or more vulnerable, and there's nothing to, uh, to hide behind, especially if you're in it as well, mm-hmm. and it was a one-man show, so I, I literally couldn't have done myself less favours yeah. uh, in terms of getting up there and just nothing else to hide behind. But, like, the other side of that was it was... It was probably my favorite thing I've ever done. Like, I loved that. Even the highs and the lows. I loved the the bad sides of it as much because it was just total autonomy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the big thing. I think that's what's so rewarding about it in in this line of work as well. When so much is out of our control, you know, mm-hmm. and it's so living moment to moment. The idea of taking any kind of control over your own over your own career and own life like is just infinitely rewarding. You know, mm. so that was that's still very top of my mind. Certainly of. An achievement, anyway, of something I'm very proud of. Anyway. Huge, yeah. And what for you were those bad parts that you could stomach because it was your own? Um, I suppose the the obvious ones, like if there's, you know, there's always going to be like a reviewer who doesn't like it. You know, there's always going to be the quiet houses on some of the nights, um, things like that, and just like the fear before building up to it. It's like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, and then it's there, and it's, uh! um, but those all. T- being able to take those in your stride and learn, learning that you can take those. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's nothing like there was one. I mean, there was one bad review that I read like an hour before the show, and I was almost delighted because I was like, "Yes, this is. I have to get back to a point where I'm ready to do this show in an hour. Mm. It's not the audience who's coming in today's fault." 
that this person didn't like it. And like, so that was the ultimate challenge. And I kind of liked that then. And then when I was able to do that, I was like, I can, I can do this. I can weather this kind of thing, you know, because it's not a given, like, because it is, it's horrible. Like Mm -hmm. I've been in shows that like I haven't written, like, and it's, it's still hard when you get, when you don't get a great one, like, Mm. um, it's all a part of it. Like I'm not one of these people who like, um, it's freaked out when someone's in, like it's, it's one of my biggest pet peeves, like as, as an actor is, is when someone on stage gives a special performance because someone's in, you know, I mean, it's one thing if you get nervous or whatever, like, but when someone tries to give it the extra 10 or 15%, that pisses me off because Mm -hmm. usually the person who's in that night, they haven't even paid for their ticket. They're invited in, you know? So why do they get the better performance than the people who've paid, Mm -hmm. you know? And I don't like, I'm not trying to come across as high and mighty or anything about that, but like, it's also from an onstage point of view, the, the person's never as in it then, you know, they're just... They're kind of uh, the performance is all out yeah. rather than they're nearly watching other. themselves being watched. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen? We were actually talking about it before we started the Mike Birbiglia film. Don't think twice. I haven't actually seen it, but I've heard it's unbelievable. Oh man, you'd love it. And uh, I this isn't really a spoiler for it, but there's this amazing scene where they're doing their improv show that they do weekly, and then this one night they hear that the Saturday Night Live executive producers are casting agents whatever it is mm-hmm. are in and um, Keegan you know Keegan-Michael Key yeah yeah he's uh, there and then um, they basically are like look we know you showboat when there's someone in please don't do that tonight please don't do that tonight uh, we're just going to go out and do our improv show whatever happens happens <laughs> and then in the first minute he's already squeezed in a Barack Obama impression <laughs> Like and it's a make and like like and he crushes with it because he's really good yeah, at it, yeah. but it like makes no sense at all, <laughs> and it, it's amazing. Well, when you got those bad reviews, obviously, let me say that these at the same time you listed this as achievement you're most proud of, rightly so. I totally yeah, agree. Yeah, I yeah. understand that feeling. Yeah, yeah. When you got the bad reviews, did you agree with them? Could you see what they meant, or were you just like, "That's bullshit. You're an asshole." Amazingly, there was because it was one like there was it was mostly good reviews, but there was one like 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 new arsehole was torn out of it. And amazingly, there was lines in it that he meant as an insult that I took as a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) There was one thing he said, because the show's about uh, a guy with a fear of birds. And so there was a lot of kind of bird facts and uh, exploring Australian rainforests and all. And uh, there was one guy who said uh, it was like, it was more like uh, Joseph Campbell doing an episode of Blue Planet. And I was like, that's amazing. That's an incredible comic because Joseph Campbell's a comparative mythologist basically had this theory that all stories are the one story. I'm a huge, massive fan of his. I was like, I will take that. You know, so that was a good one. It was, uh, we were nearly going to use the quotes from it, like, mm-hmm. except you'd have had to put a link to the review itself. Um but yeah, but then there was other sides where I, where I just went, well, that's, no, that's that can't be true. I can't, I can't agree with that. There's been too many. Because when you first get it and there's something that you disagree with, then of course you look to audience reactions and then your mind starts to go, it's like, oh, what if someone was only saying they liked it to my face? Mm. You know, and then you just have to put that aside and go, no, no, you've like, you have to, especially when these days, like people don't have to say anything. People don't have to hang around afterwards, especially like in theatre upstairs is a very small, small venue and like the outside of it is smaller. So it's quite intense afterwards when you go out mm. and people like, people really hate hanging around. And like, that's why it's great that there's a pub underneath it, that they can go straight into that. So you have to a- appropriate when someone hangs around and says that they like it at face value, because mm. like you'll just drive yourself insane otherwise, mm-hmm. you know? 
Yeah, it's very yeah, it's very interesting because like I had the I was probably in there maybe six months before you. Yeah, yeah. And so like I but I remember it too because what what was one of my favorite things about working there was people go to theater upstairs like mm-hmm. like you'll get reviewed there more than I'd say you will in any yeah, other venue. It does. It has the name. Yeah. And like you, I felt like it. You know, I felt. I got taken seriously as a writer there, which is just a nice feeling. Cause you oh, know, it is. You yeah. know yourself when you're a new writer, you're kind of desperately just want, like we all have our writers that we look up to that we admire and yeah. you just want to be taken seriously yourself. Yeah. Um. So that was one of the, but it was one of the really interesting things was because there's a difference between being reviewed badly, I think as a performer than as a writer. Cause as a performer, they're saying, I did not like what you and the director on the cast or whatever the, yeah. you know, circumstances are concocted up for they this. They very rarely say you objectively can't do it right. you know yeah. yeah and even if they did I'd be like well I I disagree because I know I can sometimes yeah, like yeah, or whatever yeah, yeah. Uh, and then if but as a writer there's a little bit of you and I think I don't think I it's, it's funny I, I don't think I feel like this consciously but I also know subconsciously a part of me does because I'm about to say it but there's a bit of them being like I don't like you and your thoughts and your experiences wow. do you know what I mean that's like, mad yeah because I, I remember hearing especially comi- if you write something personal if, if totally. something you've written is in any way autobiographical as a lot of it, the time it is right Like, <laughs> and it's interesting the play that I'm I'm about to, I'm like on the fourth draft of a new play it's very very near to being finished I did a first reading of it the other day and like, which was great and I saw loads of problems with it but I, I kind of know I think I know how to fix them all yeah, yeah. but it's, it's super personal to me like it really is like and it's actually you, you know like sometimes you hear writers being like oh you know I had to go to a dark place and it brought me back to things and, and I've been kind of like okay whatever and like I wouldn't go quite that far for me but like it's really like I'm really going there with something I know I'm digging into yeah. something and it feels different to anything I've written before and um, it will be fascinating when it goes into the world in whatever form that looks like and just to see what comes back because like you know, both characters are parts of myself, the whole experience. And it's not mm. autobiographical at all. In fact, a lot of it hasn't happened to me. But, like, the feelings feel so yeah, real. Yeah. It's and it's rooted in something. Like, yeah, yeah, it really yeah. is. It really is. Rightly or wrongly. Like, and that yeah, doesn't yeah. mean it's going to be good, but it does mean that, um, for, certainly for me, as, like, a spectator of my own work and w- what it does in the world, it's going to be interesting. That's amazing, though. That's so exciting. You yeah. know, in that terrifying, vulnerable way is saying... Which, yeah, like that's that's how you want to go through life. Yeah, t- Tommy Tiernan has this. I'm going to see him on Thursday or tomorrow. I'm so oh, excited. Really well. He's he's amazing. I'm sure you. I yeah, feel like yeah. we might have similar. Like, um, I feel like we have similar reference points, but I feel like yours go to a level of obscurity that mine might. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean that in a complimentary way. Uh, I mean that is like Joseph Planet Blue Peter way uh, in the best way. But um, but he has this amazing quote, and he goes, "The story you don't want to tell, that's where the funny is." Yeah, and I think yeah. that like a, a a writer friend of mine, John Bacchino, always says, the deeper you go, the more universal it gets. And it's all these old cliches. Like, we all yeah, know yeah. But they're, that they're true. They're the true ones. But they yeah, are. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, obviously, it's the most cliche one of all, the write what you know, but it's still the one that's the most true. Yeah. But it's, I kind of, what when you were saying there um, about, you know, working in theatre upstairs and you felt you got taken seriously as a writer, I really, I know what you mean by that. Like, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, Louis C.K. and Ricky Gervais do uh, the talk called mm. Talking Funny, where mm. it's just the four of them talking about comedy. And Jerry Seinfeld was asked, you know, like what, like, like, what did you want from yourself? Did you want to be successful? Did you want to be rich and famous? And he said, like, I just, when I started comedy, I saw other comedians, and I just thought, th- thought to myself, I want to be one of those guys. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it was just to be called a comedian. Mm-hmm. And especially like you were saying, just about being a new writer, especially if it's something that you're really, really passionate about, you just want to be called a writer, not even necessarily a great one start straight away. Mm. But like definitely working somewhere like there, it it felt yeah, it felt like I was a writer, you know, rather mm-hmm. than an actor who'd written a play. Yeah. You know, which it doesn't yeah, which doesn't go without saying, you know. Mm. Um and I I think that was one of my favourite things about working there, yeah. Totally, totally. Right, we give it a spin. Yeah, absolutely. Here we go. Number two. Do you have it? No. No worries. Number two. The question is, do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Oh, I genuinely consider myself introverted. Mm. Um, I totally see that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, I think it's, yeah, it's not something that would be clear. I think, yeah, I think if someone gets to know me, they can see that, like, my, I, I think I'm an introvert because I'm okay on my own. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like my own time and everything and uh, I, I do very well on my own in my own company. Um, and I think that was, so that was one of like the main signs of an introvert. Mm. There's like extrovert people, like it's the need of company or it's the, the, the desire of company more so. Mm. But yeah, from a, from a first glance, I can understand why someone wouldn't think that was the case because I'm a loud person and like oftentimes wear quite loud clothing as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and if someone, because the way you answered that question was I genuinely think I'm an introvert, which implies that people might be surprised for, yeah, by yeah, your answer. Yeah, oh, totally, yeah. Do you, um, if someone <laughs> accuses you of being an extrovert for want of a better phrase, <laughs> but if someone's like, Kevin, no, you're wrong, you're an actor, you're out there, you do a podcast, you're a writer, you yeah, do all yeah. these mad things, do you feel the need to defend your introvertedness or are you quite comfortable with the label of extrovert? I guess, yeah, I guess I'd be, I'd be defense. I, I suppose that's my own fault then is that I would... In the way it would be aimed at me, I would see some sort of almost negative connotation with me being considered extroverted, which it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that's a good point that I shouldn't be kind of defensive about it just because I view myself in a different way. Um, I guess I, I would think it worth saying that I do consider myself that because I wouldn't think I would be considered introverted very mm-hmm. often. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things that I, I've noticed about myself lately in the last I would say like two or three months that's so important to me that I never realised it was is how important the narrative I project onto my life is to me like that is so important to me (laughs) it's embarrassing how important it is to me (laughs) how do you mean for example I am at the start of this year one of my one of the things that I want to do is just examine my relationship with alcohol okay yeah and I I am not an alcoholic I don't consider myself to be an Mm -hmm. alcoholic I would drink I would say maybe even less than the next person. But when I do drink, I drink a lot. And right, I, I awful and very hard. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I am like six days a week away from being a pint man, <laughs> is what I'm saying. But you know what I mean? So like one of the things I want to do is just examine that and just like fuck with that relationship a little bit. And um, before I've gone off like alcohol for like six month periods and mm-hmm. I really like it. Like, but the reason I like it is okay, yeah, sure. Maybe a little bit less anxiety. Like uh, maybe you, you lose like a little bit of weight and uh, no hangovers all these all yeah, these yeah. things but I really like the narrative of like Tom as being someone who doesn't drink I don't know why I just think it suits That's me so interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, like I really like like it, it's in, yeah it is interesting like there, there's certain things that when I do them I really like it really sits well in my like 
even even today, like I haven't been auditioning much at all lately. And today I went to two auditions and I was walking around town feeling so meaningful. And I was like, Top this, <laughs> this really just, and it's like, I don't know what I get the jobs. I don't know if I did good auditions. I don't know any of the things. But it's like, this really suits the narrative that I have of what I am in the world and what I look like and what I want to look like and mm-hmm. what I want to do. And um, yeah, but I don't know. That's why when I kind of asked that question from a selfish place was because I also feel like, an introvert with an awful lot of extroverted qualities yeah, and like yeah. I'd probably be like you know 60, 40 or 55, 45 something like yeah, that yeah. but I do ultimately fund, you know what you were saying there was um, you do well by yourself like that's one of the definitions I've heard of is like where do you get your energy from yeah yeah um, so what does doing well by yourself look like to you? Oh I don't know um, like I guess yeah like it's about being <clears throat> being alone with your own thoughts and everything like mm. and just being okay with that which isn't always the easiest like I mean I I really like just even like talking about alcohol there like I have a particular I have a particular thing about Irish people you know throwing around the word alcoholic which mm. a lot of them do you know and so in a jovial way most of the time but I think we do it in such a jovial way that it actually does diminish it as a genuine disease mm-hmm. um so I was I think yeah that's that's such a good way of putting it it was like I like anal- analyzing our attitudes towards it because I would probably drink more than the average person um but I also have gone through several bouts of giving it up and everything and I don't think I have a negative attitude towards alcohol mm. because um I don't think I'm different on it mm-hmm. and I don't think I drink it to feel different and I have I have a I consider it a curse where I never have memory loss from alcohol right <laughs> um, which I know several people who like will forget every single night and that means that if they do anything the next day they've forgotten about it and if you say it to them then you're the asshole mm-hmm. <laughs> you know there's like oh you want to see what you were doing last night it's like no you can't say that yeah. <laughs> um, so it's the it's my curse in that memory loss is rarely an affliction although that means when it does happen like the once or twice it might happen uh, it's terrifying mm. <laughs> That's that's when the fear truly, truly grips. Oh man, one of my like great fears in life is that I will go to that place of like not being able to remember something. And like, bear in mind as I tell this fear of mine, like I am quite a good person. I don't do anything like terrible in the world, generally speaking. But I have this fear that someone will ha- have video recorded me out in the street by myself, like punching a dog to death or something. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like something that I would never so do. So much worse than a person. Yeah. Yeah, like something outrageous and I'm going to go viral on the Lad Bible, be run out like I'll have to go and live in Zimbabwe or something. And this is just a fear of mine. I don't know if, uh, because you were going for a short short time, but have you ever filled out the American visa form? (laughs) Yeah. Oh man, the questions on that. I was only doing it last night. And they like... Well, first of all, the first one I laughed at was that, are you a member of a paramilitary rebel rebel group? I just wrote, I wish. <laughs> and then, like, I don't know if you've seen my, my pin there. Oh, yeah. It says, sons out, Brits out, for all you listeners. Excellent. Um, but one of them, have you committed genocide? Yeah. I was like, I guess they have. Like, yes. bureau- bureaucracy. I would think that if I had committed genocide that I wouldn't be filling out my own forms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that's the one thing I would hope to be at if I was at that level. Yeah. 
That just like you saying about being like a good person just made me think of those insane questions. They're big on the human trafficking. Mm. It's about 15 questions that like, are you related to someone who's engaged in human trafficking? Have you ever met someone who engages in human trafficking? Like, Yeah, I'd love to know because like, uh, well, maybe I'm giving them too much credit, but I'd love to know, like surely if they ask those questions, there has to be at least like, you know, 0.1% of people who actually like... <laughs> Like are overly honest who just like can't you know yeah, yeah. who like must have been like well yes I, I was part of some genocide sure <laughs> you know what I just mean? a small amount of genocide yeah, yeah. how big's your box you know? yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah just the g in genocide that's <laughs> it yeah yeah i guess it is just it's bureaucracy you know if they did let someone in it's like well you didn't say no genocide yeah, you know yeah. or no people have committed it yeah me force you force. Well, we can both go. We have to do an ad. Yeah. Well, we're in somebody's podcast now. We are in a podcast. Who's fucking podcast? Somebody's podcast from the Headstuff Network because we're going to tell them about our podcast. Oh, yeah, Dublin Podcast, yeah. So I'm PJ Gallagher. And I'm Suzanne Kane. And this is sort of an ad for the Dublin Podcast. Um, stick us in your ears if you haven't done so already. What do we do on our podcast? I don't know, but we've done it 111 times and there's loads more of it to come. Dublin, the podcast. Yeah, Suzanne's fucking sound. I'm a pain in the earth. It's a sort of a magical thing. Factually correct. Right, let's uh, let's give it a spin. spin okay, here we go. Number nineteen. I Gavin. got it. Oh, nice one! Yes. Congratulations. Uh, love it. I love a good fist pump upon number again. <laughs> um, excellent. Give the game away. <laughs> kind of appropriate given visa questions. Have you or do you ever consider emigrating? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I think this this year particularly. Um, I I really really love Ireland. Mm. I do very much so, and I love Dublin. Like I'm. I'm from Wicklow originally, but I didn't have a, an amazing time growing up there. Um, so I very much, when I came up here for college, I really adopted Dublin as a new home. Like I still like consider my family home in Wicklow very much my home because I love my family and all, of course. Mm-hmm. But just Wicklow as a town, I don't really have any relationship with. I wouldn't really have any, many friends there or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so my entire life is in Dublin. So even when I there's been a few spells where I haven't been living here like just before or just after I've been going away um, and I'm still up and down to Dublin every day mm. you know so my whole life really is here and I really really love it and want to like live and want to live here and want to if I have a family to raise my family here and everything but just it's just the cost thing like you gotta go where the work is mm-hmm. and I think like Lon- like London is is the first port of, port of call of course and I always say when I came out of college I'd give I'd give Dublin a few years because there were people who re- who left straight away in my class, um, to to su- to varying degrees of success, like some incredible success, but there was there was like a, a starting to be a buzz about the college when we were coming out. So I thought it would have been silly to run straight away from that for me personally, anyway. Mm-hmm. But now it's got to the stage because obviously you want to go over there with work, you know. Um, but now it's got to the stage where like I have to go over and just if I have to go over and just dive in I need to do it while I'm still young and detached enough you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that before any serious roots start start to take place yeah yeah it's that interesting thing of like I think everyone or certainly I have that fantasy of if I go I'll go with a job yeah and then you but at the same time you have to be like well that's rare like as in that is rare maybe there'll be like a couple of shows that do that a year yeah and if you're in one of them great but odds are you won't be yeah like you know what I mean so it's like is that going to happen and obviously then yeah it's it's interesting just trying to like circumvent that like that process because obviously the other option is to just go and 
go with nothing and go with like no agent or no job even or no you know accommodation sort all that out when you get there but mm-hmm. I'm very much in that place of like trying to find the thing that makes sense because like I really want to have a part of my career in London but like like ideally like I'd love to be based out of Dublin LA New York yeah, yeah. Uh, London oh, jet set and all yeah totally yeah, and, yeah. and like that's you know that's like that's something that people do but you know when you're like here right now you're like because like the way I think of it now is I'm like even if I was to go over and just be there with, I don't have a, an agent in London currently I'm like I don't even know are my chances of having a London agent that much better by just being there versus being here if mm-hmm. you're proactively looking I suppose the only difference is that you could probably come across like a profit share show or something over there that yeah. you would then go and invite agents to yeah. or something like that but yeah it's curious it's but is also the the thing as well um, <clears throat> where if you have any level of um, safety or security and thus happiness usually mm. um, it will just affect your ethic ever so slightly now like you are genuinely you have one of the best ethics of anyone I know working in the business at the moment you're just like it blows my mind just how many fingers and how many pies you have and oh, how, much, you. how much you keep you just do you just do things like and you're such a, a, a like a, a, like inspirations with the wrong words is but like like that it's it's motivating even for me to see someone like you just doing things like and but I think like if you go over to London with nothing, um, you're gonna have that that ethic is gonna force itself on you, like in an almost needs must kind of way. Mm. You know, like I have a few things here that like have security and safety in them, but as a result and I would I would consider myself having a, a, a very strong work ethic. Like mm. I wouldn't consider myself lazy at all. Um but I just feel like if you went over there you would be like, oh my god, the, the clock is actually ticking in some way, like, and so you would just be constantly more at that. Like, that seems to be the impression I get from people who have gone over there, like, just diving straight in. Mm. Um, it's interesting. It's one of them relationships that, like, I have to constantly monitor because one of the things that I always used to say was because I, you know, I had a couple of friends. It's funny. I actually don't have loads of friends there. I know a really? lot of people do. I don't have loads there. No, and more and more I do. And one of the things that was really important for me to monitor for myself was like, for as long as the reason I'm not going is fear, it's okay. Like, if fear was the thing stopping me of going, that's a that's problematic for me. Yeah. I just wouldn't. Again, in in my like narrative of myself, that doesn't work for me. Yeah, but. Like right now, like you said, it, it. I think it still does make sense for me to be here, but like I, it, if it was like on a sand timer, you know, that's been tilted, it's like it, it, it's getting less and less and less. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, yeah. So it's just that. I, I, but the thing is, then something could change here that would like constantly shift that would um not constantly would like kind of rapidly shift that again, and like your sand timer it looks different. So. It's so interesting, but I guess, yeah, as you said, it's so close and there are so many people that go and it feels like a manageable thing to do. Yeah, that's what we're so fortunate about living here is that it is so close. Mm. So it is so possible to do the over and back thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, from either way, like, and that's that's a great thing about how close they are mm. is that ability to do that. You mentioned growing up in Wicklow, it wasn't the, I can't remember the phrase you used, but it wasn't the, the happiest place yeah, for you all the, the time. Yeah, it ideal, no, yeah. What did that look like? Um, well, that was, I kind of became the person I am. I, I developed into this kind of personality uh, or quite early on, and I, I feel like I knew who I was quite, quite young. 
Um, but that didn't really fly in a small country town <laughs> in in a in a small public school like where um I just like I so I just I got bullied quite mm. quite a lot so like I would have been like I went to De La Salle in Wicklow town uh, for first and second year and I would have been like entering like the talent shows and doing like tenacious D songs and stuff that made me really happy, you know, and I felt like a great lad doing. Uh, but then I just get the worst slaggings out of it, like and like going for things like student council. And uh, I also was quite I was quite chubby when I was young for it as well. Mm. So there was that element as well. Uh, but I really showed like no, like I like I guess my my family still lives in Wicklow now and there are there are lovely people there, but just my generation, my school experience wasn't positive at all. And I I could tell that it wasn't me by the fact that like I left Del Sal at the end of second year. I, I just said to my mum, I can't I can't do it anymore. And she had started teaching in Gerrards in Bray. Uh, a few years before she had started teaching music in the junior school mm. and she just said um would like would you be interested in going to Jared's and I said yeah anywhere absolutely anywhere and so I left Alisal in the July the June or July and I went to Jared's in the September and I was just instantly appreciated mm. for being the exact same person mm. I didn't change in a summer you know just the environment I was in changed and that was that saved me big time. Mm. Just going into an atmosphere where it was straight away, like of course there was always going to be teething problems settling in. Like Delasau was all boys, Jared's was mixed, so it was first time in a mixed school. And obviously, like fourteen into fifteen, that's a tough fucking age. Like, mm. um, so there was teething problems there, but just straight away I went, oh no, this is this is different. This 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 feels better. Like. How do you think that, like, that first and second year you who was doing things that made you happy but was also being, like, shamed because of them or bullied because of them, how do you think that affected you and continues to, if it does? Um, I suppose when I was in transition year, that's when I started getting into fitness and I lost. I lost about 30 pounds the first time I really did. Mm. Um, And so, like, I would always, like, fluctuate to an extent, but I still would be always around a weight that I'd be fairly happy with now, but I think I'm still incredibly sensitive about it. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't consider myself a sensitive person to the most I most degree. I'd be quite, I think I'd be quite emotional at the base of the time, but sensitive isn't the word I would use. Mm. I would like to think that I can take it as much as I can give it, certainly. But weight is something I have no sense of humour about. Yeah, That's just kind of deeply rooted. Um, I, and I remember it was... Uh, it was like it was there was a joke there was a joke in fierce notions the show we did last year mm. um uh about me being fat in it and it really bothered me mm. and i never said a thing about it because of course i'm, like, I'm not going to be like what rewrite the, the script it was uh Rag- ragnall's nothing but a disloyal fecker or, or fuck the fat fuck we can fucking do better yeah. it's a great line yeah. and like everyone used to be saying it because it's such a good line everyone used to be saying it i was like bothers me because mm-hmm. that was like written into a draft after I joined the cast and like it was playing on my mind the whole time I was like right. this lad's out to get me like and 
And like Fiona's one of my closest friends now and like it, there's nothing to do with him. This is totally my no, sensitivity yeah, to yeah. it. Hence why I never did say anything. Yeah. But that was really I was like, God, I'm still not over. That's how that's how rooted that uh, insecurity about that was. Right. That's so interesting. I keep saying this in all the episodes and I'm building it up way too much. But again, it's just it's just because it's on my mind so much. The play I'm writing about now deals with like exactly this. It deals with it deals with like demons from school and it also deals with like men about their weight because I don't think it's something that we talk about very much no yeah and like I don't really know and like okay that's an exaggeration but I would say the vast 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 majority of men I know have severe body issues yeah like, yeah severe like whether, what, now that can look like different things that can look like you know they're kind of obsessed with their like figure and like you know going to the gym loads which, which is absolutely fine and I just came from the gym for example mm-hmm. but I know why I go to the gym and it is not for health reasons <laughs> like it's yeah, not it's yeah. so I don't look like the way I looked when I got bullied for being fat yeah, you yeah. know what I mean and I, 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 I just want to meet you there and be like I am the same I have no time <laughs> and it's so funny being in that show I would consider myself to be someone who would be quite self-aware and quite, um, like, I, d- I don't even mean thoughtful in the way of, like, you know, I will bring you flowers because it's Tuesday. I mean thoughtful in the sense of, like, <laughs> but, but, you know, but, like, thoughtful in the sense of... Um, you know, if there's a if there's a line where like you know someone might be um, self conscious about their weight, there's a line like that. Like I I noticed that I never even thought of that. But isn't that so funny? Because I always thought because fat is one of those words like it's not even like we me you know John Dennehy was on this week's episode and um, it's one of my favorite episodes of the podcast ever. But I we love, have this oh he's an I amazing love him so much yeah an amazing person um, and we have this amazing conversation where. We, we like uh, they were talking about the word um, the F word and you know how that was used mm. and gay was kind of u- or, uh, sorry and um, and fat was kind of used in a similar way like if you were like they were like oh stop being gay you know yeah, yeah. we knew what that meant and it was kind of like oh, being a fat bastard like that might mean if you know you had the last celebration from a tub yeah, you know what yeah. I mean it wouldn't be oh yeah, yeah like yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's so but it's so interesting and weight is it's so funny because like we have such an awareness about so many things but I think so many men carry this like it's even will you actually can we work this out live on air okay let's you know it. dad bod yes you know that as a, a phrase yeah. and like how like and it's one of them things you'll see like a study pop up on Facebook like being like dad bod is the most popular body mm-hmm. for women like yeah. that's what women like like dad bod is that like not an, like absurdly like insulting thing and again I I would consider myself sensitive, but I, I would not consider myself to be a very PC person. I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't like, as in, I never want someone to feel less than. That's something that I've, less than is like, a, it's in my head at the moment, but like, I never want someone to feel like that. So anything that makes someone feel like that, I don't think we should use those words. But like, I'm not a PC person. Yeah. Dad body, like it doesn't really bother me that much. But at the same time, like, if, I just don't get why we use stuff like that. That doesn't. I know what you mean. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a good way to look at. Everything has to have a name. Yeah. Yeah. It, just men's <laughs> shape. It's it just because it's on my mind. I saw a meme the other day. <laughs> Someone tweeted, "Magic Mike made two hundred and fifty-one million. If you still think girls are into dad bods, you're kidding yourself." Right. And the comment underneath it was, "Shrek made four hundred and eighty million. Just to be clear." <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Ogre bod, though. (laughs) Doesn't count. I know, yeah. Dad bod's a funny one, yeah. Ah, I don't even know why I brought that up. It's just something that I've always thought about. It is, yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it's, like, I, a couple of years ago, like, I would have been very, very, all, all rooted into the weight and the image, but I've been very, I would have been very insecure in general until I was about 20 or 21 
kind of was in my second, maybe final year of college. Um, because like I went to I went to college straight from school, mm. and uh, there was concerns when I was auditioning. I'd been told this like after I got in that they were like, "Are you too? Is he too young? Does he need to go away and come back?" And it was a weird thing, yeah. Like, um, I'm sure, like I'm sure you had a similar thing where like it's you come to like the age of twenty one, and then you're like going straight into your like your career, like, and as even if it's your dream career, it's still like, and especially Delir wasn't a real. Uh, it wasn't a, a part a party college really at all. So like per- particularly the first and second year was quite serious. So kind of when third year came, there was a bit of a lashing out I had in myself where I was like, oh, I need to I need to live some kind of college life, or I'm trying to figure out. I was trying to grow up at the same time as learning how to be an actor as well, and those seemed at war with each other the odd time. Um, but I read this book. I was recommended this book by my best friend Rory. Um, he. Uh, it was called Models, How to Attract Women Through Honesty. Mm. That's a terrible name for a book because like, it comes across like it's a pickup book, yeah. which it isn't at all. Mm-hmm. It's it's a self-psychology book. Um, he actually, Mark Manson, the writer, he wrote a more uh, gender-balanced version of it a couple of years ago called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Yeah, I've heard of it. Yes, yeah. and I read that as well. And Subtle Art is brilliant. It basically is a contemporary... Uh, a contemporary view of Zen Buddhism, mm. but applying it to like normal everyday... Um, and that that book just really it really did save me it um it just it teaches values it's about like about having value in yourself and that there needs to be things that you will and won't tolerate in yourself as much as with anyone else that you associate with mm. um and that learning like blind blind boys podcast talks about this constantly about like intrinsic value you know mm. and that is really the biggest thing that helped me in terms of getting over any any weight issues or anything because in it when I was in final year college I was it was the best shape I was ever in mm. um like and but again like I'm you look back on pictures and you're like how did I not know that I looked like that mm-hmm. you know because you, you weren't in the right headspace and like I wouldn't have said I had body dysmorphia but I definitely wasn't seeing the same thing in the mirror that I can look back on and pictures that I like I saw on my like laptop that mm-hmm. I had like it was like trying to chart the progress you know and you look at the end result and you're like I, like I didn't think that I looked like that you know I didn't feel that way inside yeah it's funny the like um an ex-girlfriend of mine would have been one of the people I would have talked to this about because it's not something you talk. I, I wouldn't talk about this with a lot of my friends because first of all, it doesn't come up. Second of all, no one can make me feel better about that. That's my <laughs> own work that I have to do exactly, yeah. on a continual basis. So it doesn't didn't really feel fruitful. But I suppose one of the places where this will come out for me is in like intimacy and in like sexual relationships because mm-hmm. obviously that involves first of all your clothes being off, which is like it was funny. I was thinking about this while I was in the gym today. I was like, I really like the way I look at the moment. Yeah, if someone asked me to, like, whip off my shirt for, like, you know, a, like, beach photo or something like that, like, I would look good. I wouldn't have a six-pack, right? Like, I, I would be somewhere in between that. But I was like, I really like how I look now because I look real nice in a T-shirt or a nice shirt or a blazer or whatever it is. And that's how I am in the world 99% of the time. Uh-huh. The 1% of the time I'm not like that is if I'm, you know, or when I care at least is, like, if I'm, you know... uh 
like on the beach or something like that which is very rare or like if I'm in a like romantic intimate situation where like you know we're basically going to have you're going to have sex with someone yeah. and you're taking your clothes off and whatever and then I guess the hope is that you're at a like loving enough place with that person most of the time depending on what the relationship is I suppose uh, where like that doesn't really matter like that they're gonna kind of they like they want to share this moment with you because you share something a little bit deeper than like you know a six pack or pecs or whatever it is mm -hmm. but it was this really interesting thing so it's like what like why do i strive for this like perfect body for like about 0.5 percent of my life yeah you yeah. know what i mean like the only <laughs> times when that's gonna matter is like if i don't know like okay if there's a role that needs you to take your top off and I've had that before and mm -hmm. like that's one thing and okay that's like a, a motivation to go and yeah yeah get into that shape but like for the rest of it like it's I don't know I was just struggling with like why do I still want this I know like yeah. I have this intellectual understanding that I, I don't need it like to, to the average person on the street like exactly like you like John Denny he sat there again and it's it's real challenging like he, he said to me he was like one of the first things people say about you is how like attractive you are that's really hard for me to hear because I don't <laughs> feel like that even though on another level like I know like I'm not a bad looking person and sorry to go full circle I'm doing no, a lot no, of talking good, here good, I apologise <laughs> but like the this girlfriend one of the things that she said to me that will stick with me till the day I die I say and bear in mind this is someone like who I was we were totally in love with it for a long time and would have said way nicer things than, but one of the most meaningful things she said to me she was like you will never be fat she's like you are not like and like by the way there's nothing wrong with being fat but to me no, it's course, like yeah. a great fear of mine yeah, yeah, which is wrong but it like it just is and well, she, like if you've been persecuted for being something right. it's hard for you to not view it yes yeah, exactly like, I, I really work in this all the time <laughs> but she was like you will never be fat like you care about it so much and like you exercise so much and you watch what you eat and you do like the right thing she's like you will never be fat and like <laughs> it's so stupid like she probably doesn't even remember saying this to me but I will never forget it because it was like that's the most amazing. meaningful thing that anyone's ever said to me it's amazing like because when you're when you're in love with someone as I am myself right now and you like and you love every part of them you know inside and out like if you love them completely like um, but there's nothing <laughs> I've had said to me is I I love like I love your body, mm. and like I like that's such a lovely thing to say and like it's such a genuine thing to say. But like it shows how deep it in that even though I would believe them, uh, I'm still in the back of my head going nah. Oh yeah, nah you don't. You're oh I just, don't believe you're just saying that. <laughs> yeah, you're just saying that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's insane. It's like get out. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting. So let me ask you then, as someone who is in love at the moment, and when you flip that around, right? Because I'm sure no matter who any of us ever fall in love with, even if it's fucking Mila Kunis, like <laughs> they're gonna have things about them that they hate, yes, that they despise, of course. Yeah. like physically. It's just it's a weird part about human beings. But like when you look at that person that you love, like like as honestly as you can answer this, like are there parts of them that you go like, hmm? I don't actually like that, but it doesn't matter because I still love you. But or like or like, does love for you is it so all encompassing that it it doesn't actually matter? In a generalized way, I would say no. I wouldn't have that kind of all encompassing view of love as a whole with this specific person. Yeah, mm. to be honest, yeah. Like I think like there's always gonna be um, there's always gonna be little things like you know, but like they they just get sucked in by by everything else you know they just get taken away you know mm -hmm. so like you don't see them as much like mm. it's no yeah i like look at uh, this person no yeah it's definitely 
all encompassing, I would say, certainly. But yeah. so it feels it feels specific, you know. It's given like it's given I've had various different kind of just to get back to what we were talking about, um I think the co- the kind of straw that broke the camel's back when I was in college in terms of sorting my own head out was we were doing we were doing a show into the woods. Mm. I was playing the baker in it and it was like a dream role of mine. I'd always wanted to play a lead in a Sondheim. It's an incredible show. It's so hard, like it's so challenging from a like a, a lyrical and a harmony point of view. It's amazing like um and i remember there was a there was a there was a person who i thought i was in love with um in in the college and she came to see the show and she never told me that she was coming in she kind of just came in went and told me like a couple of days later that she'd already been in and it fucking crushed me Mm. and the whole show seemed meaningless then you know, I could take no, I could take no pleasure from the work that I put in or the enjoyment of, I couldn't enjoy the show myself that like I loved so much. Mm. And like that, I have very few regrets in my life, but I regret not enjoying that experience more. But that was, that was when I really learned that I lived for other people. If my happiness hinged on what other people thought of me or thought of my performance, that was finally the, oh, this is insane. This has to stop. It doesn't stop immediately. It is, but that was definitely where the build-up happened. Mm. And now at the moment, I find myself in love with a person who's given me such a, a, a wonderful feeling, or like a wonderful opinion of love again. Mm. And I now can really see the difference between infatuation and love certainly in this case like where I would have been infatuated with people before and I've had lovely relationships with girls over the years mm. um, but this this feels a bit different now earlier in the show you said oh god of the show <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that earlier in the show <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> earlier in the chat you said that you sorry that, why does it sound accusatory all of a sudden but you in, said you said uh, earlier in the chat you mentioned that you one of your pet peeves is when people change their performance because someone isn't in, in the audience yeah so what was it about this person being in the audience you not knowing about it that was so uh, I don't know what the word is but was so um, meaningful to you um, like what would have changed if you knew they were there I guess you know it's one of those classic things where they where they say like why did you want to be an actor and so often lads will say to meet girls right you know which I don't like which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing you know or that like it's it's an inherently wrong thought to have um, but I think when I was was younger like and like from being like a child to being like 20, 21 um, and I had no confidence in any other aspect of my life. I had a tremendous amount of confidence in myself as a as a performer, mm. and that's where I felt confident and I felt alive. And I guess because I felt like I was in love with this person, and it was unrequited for a long time. I did get them eventually, and it wasn't worth it at all. Mm. But um, but I think that I thought that if they came and saw me being good in that show that that would win them over, you know, because right. I felt that I was I was a better person, I was a more attractive person. And this is an insane thought because nothing on that stage is real. That's not you at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had the reverse of that where, um, where someone has, like, fallen for me in a performance that I was and then, like... I couldn't be that person. Like, it's a lot more blurred in, uh, in stand-up. I did stand-up for about a year and... It's amazing. It's such a different world, such a dramatically different world. Mm. But there, the lines are blurred so much more. So even like you get up on stage and you're doing your ten minutes, and these are ten minutes that you've 
prepared and worked on so many times and then afterwards you like chatting to a girl in a bar and all and like you're not that funny in real life no comedian is as funny in real life as they are on stage because mm. you don't rehearse your bits constantly yeah. David O'Doherty talks incredibly about this about that he can't ever be involved with someone who he's met who's, who's, who's he's met after a show because just the the levels are immediately off mm. kilter you know mm. They've like it's been it's peacocking at its ultimate form. Like. Mm-hmm. And wh- this um, this girl that you were in love with now, and you know it's not infatuation, you know it's different. Yes. How do you know when you're in love? Um, I suppose I would say when it gets to the everyday stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's easy to be in love on you know on the highs of like you know nights out and all this kind of stuff. But when you get to the just driving in the car to the shop to get a chicken fillet roll or like just like lie in bed on Sunday morning like there's those little bits where you just look over and you're just like and it sounds really soppy but I mean in a very genuine way like Mm. you just go like I I love this person Mm -hmm. this is a person I want to be with do you find it hard to fall in love or does it come easy too easy (laughs) (laughs) like no but that's a serious question yeah um, for a good while for a good while it was too easy Mm -hmm. I would fall in love three times a week yeah they used to call me Ross Geller and when I was in secondary school like (laughs) um, they and so then I think between the ages of about 22 and 25 I would call it my reckoning period I suppose um, it was the exact opposite and I went no to absolutely everything and like I probably like there were times where I would have been with a girl for like four or five months and it would refuse to commit and didn't felt like it felt right. I feel really justified now because of the relationship that I'm in now where like before I've been like, like would another person have just given that person a chance and would I still be with that person? But I feel really justified now that I am in such a happy relationship that I go, no, I was right. Mm. I was right to not commit there that wasn't the right thing but yeah there was a period of a few years where it was where I totally cut myself off emotionally and I I would hope like now I probably like, I, I probably wasn't the nicest person to some of them you know like mm-hmm. and it wasn't their fault like I I like probably felt like I was taking some kind of revenge because I'd been hurt so badly a few times mm-hmm. um but came out the other side of that now and I think I'm at a, a nice middle middle ground now. Yeah, and it would be like some people spend their whole life in that like reactionary thing, you know, where they're yeah, taking... Yeah, totally. So like that, I think that, that's so normal. I ha- what I was going to say, I had a thing to say and now I don't remember, but it doesn't matter. Should we spin again? Yeah, we'll spin again. We haven't spun in a good while. I know. We only had like four questions. I, I think know. That's a good sign though, It is it? a that good sign. the conversation's flowing. It means yeah. I'm enjoying it too yeah. much. Um, all right, number 53. Do you have it? No. No Number 53. Oh, lovely. Yeah, what is the greatest piece of art you've ever witnessed? Ooh. Top of my head, um, the Mark Rothko Four Seasons paintings in the Tate. Ooh. Um, It's, I don't know if you know, if you've ever been to them. No, I'm so bad with like, with like, Art, because like when I say the question, I mean it in like the broadest. Sense. Oh, I know, yeah, yeah but, but I this just, was the I, one. I jumped, I jumped to that, like, because like yeah. try to go with the first thing that comes into my head. Absolutely. Oh, don't get me wrong, like I wouldn't be like a big arty person at all. Like I did, I would have always been really good at art history in school. Mm. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm a really messy writer, and I, I love art, but like I wouldn't be a good drawer or a painter or anything. But I won the art award in. Uh, 
in, when I was in school to much to much uh, outrage from the rest of my class because I got the highest art history mark in the mock. Uh, so that counted. Like there was like a practical one as well. Yeah. But I was always re- I was good at like clay and things. And I was good at the theory of art. I had a good like eye for it. But uh, couldn't yeah couldn't write my own name like mm. in terms of actual artistic ability. But I never really got. I never really got modern art um, until I went to the Tate Modern only a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And so the Rothko rooms, Mark Rothko is this painter who he was commissioned by the Four Seasons uh, Hotel, no, restaurant, restaurant in New York mm. uh, to create these four paintings. And the restaurant was going to be built around the paintings. So they were built, they're enormous and they were going to be built on scaffolding and the scaffolding was going to be put on and then the restaurant was going to be built around. Right. And so he did them and he spent years on them. And when he was done, he went, nah, you're not having them. He pulled out of it. And so now they're in the Tate Modern and they're just a room. And you just go in. And the only way I can describe it is you just feel things. Mm. Like they're literally, so Rothko worked exclusively in like reds and blacks. Mm. So it's like, it's like four paintings and they're all just like red, black, red, black but they're so large and they're the only things in this room and there's just seats in there and you can literally just sit down there. And that's where I got modern art because modern art, you know, like the argument is like, uh, like you, someone slashed a canvas and now it's modern art and it's like, well, everyone can, well, anyone could do that. But it's like, but no one did. Mm. Like if someone did it again, obviously it's different, but no one had done that before. Yeah. So there's that side of it. And then there is, it's whatever it makes you feel. Mm-hmm. And that's when I kind of got it. And that's when I almost connected it back to theater and film. Like, and, but in such a more open way, because like it, it could be anything. Like it could make you feel like reset. And I mean, it's hard to describe, like, unless, because it's just by looking at it. But it's just so, I, and it, it just kind of left the mark. And then whenever I'm over in London, I try to go back to it, like, and just kind of sit there with them, like, mm. and they're amazing. Yeah. Um, but I'm trying to think if I was to think outside of of art, of art, art. Um, no, it's an amazing answer, man. I, I don't even want to. I don't even want to force you there because what's so interesting with, with me, I find, um, which is why I love podcasts, why, why I'm really enjoying your podcast. Especially, like I was complimenting yours with the with the soundscape added on to the brilliant mm-hmm. writing and storytelling and and voice work and all of that. But I am a very like um, what's the right word? Like aural person. Like information through my ears works way better than stuff through my eyes. Yeah. Like I find it hard to sit down and read a book or something but like if you like if I was like I could listen to I could honestly take in 16 hours of podcast a day really? and I would be engaged for all 16 no problem yeah. like it's so interesting but like you know visually I don't work great that way it's even the same like if I was like you know in this play that I'm writing now I can definitely play one of the parts but I'm, I'd be kind of interested I don't want to be a director but I'd be kind of interested in directing it to make sure I have it the way I want in my head yeah, maybe yeah. that's a little bit narcissistic <laughs> I don't know but like I would like um, but one of the things that would be very intimidating for me is just the visuals of it like you know like what colour are the lights and like what, what the costumes and like even like blocking I feel like I'll be okay with because I come from an acting background and you know that sense of play and like yeah, we'll find yeah. it and whatever the fuck but um do you find that like certain of you, like that certain senses of yours are oh fascinating on the way down here speaking of senses I was cycling on my bike and a blind woman was crossing the road not at a set of traffic lights and like she just walked in front of me because obviously she's listening for cars I assume did she have a dog no she had a stick and I didn't realize she was blind at first I I now I'm pretty sure she was, and she just walked right in front of me I had to do this ridiculous swerve there was a guy like a, a builder nearby who was just like 
what the fuck oh but she just walked she had no idea it was there still didn't because I um, it was the Dublin bikes and I don't know is there, is there a bell on them I'm not sure but there I certainly is. is there right I certainly didn't ring it on time like she just stepped in front of me it was just this ridiculous moment and I was like oh my god like I really could have like Jesus. Deeply. And there's so many bikes in Dublin, like I know to cross in the middle of a road. Yeah, I know, and like obviously it would have been the kind of thing because if if you hit anyone with anything, it's kind of your fault. Even though she absolutely walked out in front of me, but like I'm also the one who like decapitated a blind a woman. A blind woman. You know what I mean? <laughs> Maybe that's my lad, like my lad Bible yeah, punching the mind, dog. Never punching the dog. Yeah, down a blind yeah, woman. On totally a bike. sober. But uh, do you find that with certain of your senses that they are more heightened? Like, do you find that you know visually you're better than hourly or whatever it might be? That's an interesting. One. Like, I come from, I come from quite a musical background, mm. uh, and. Just, Music is very much as much of a passion as as acting would be, so I definitely can hear hear things a lot. Um, it's a, there's a brilliant um, documentary on um, cartoon voiceover actors mm. called "I Know That Voice." It's made by John DiMaggio, who voices Bender in Futurama and Jake the Dog in Adventure Time, and hundreds of others. Um, but it has a section on it where it talks about music because nearly all voiceover actors are musical. Right. Um, and they said it's more like it's it's more a matter of uh, quickness in a booth in a session. He said if you can hear a line a certain way, like if you're being given a note and a voice line, like um, um, if you can just hear the rhythm and the musicality of a line, like it, it's no coincidence that so many voiceover actors are incredible singers. Like mm. Dan Castellaneta who voices Homer Simpson, like he's such a good singer. Really? And there's loads of them. Like when they do the Barbershop episode and it's Barney as the lead singer, it's actually Dan Castellaneta voicing him. Mm-hmm. And... um. So I can hear I can hear a lot of things, but then even with Cassowary, my show, I I saw how that looked in my head, mm. and I was really like I was really closed minded about like I didn't because I wanted it to be like more of a intimate storytelling experience, um, like right to the audience, like very like how the show in a bags are done a lot of the time. Um, where it was just like the actor and story. I didn't want, I wanted it to be set anywhere that it was performed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted it like that it was set in theatre upstairs, you know. The other side of that though is it. you have to very deliberately make a space look minimalist, mm. you know, rather than it's just looking like you have no money, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there was a lot to that. But like I had, I definitely had this very clear look in my head of what I wanted the character's costume to be. And... There was a time, like, in the middle of it where I was like, why didn't I just, why was I so arrogant? Why didn't I just hire a set and costume designer and have them do it and look at this for me? But then when I found the look, when I found, I found it in a in a charity shop in Glasgow, of all places, that's where my girlfriend lives at the moment, mm. um, and I found it and it was just so satisfying. I was like, looked at myself in the mirror. I said, "This is it. This is this is how it looked in my head." Mm. Because a script, like you know yourself, as soon as you get it up on its feet, it'll never be, for better or for worse, it'll never be as you imagined it in your head that first time. Usually, for better, like, and that's why it's one of the best parts is hearing it out loud for the first time. Mm. It almost opens up so many different possibilities that you never even noticed. But it'll never be exactly as it was in your head. So there was something really satisfying about it looking exactly like it did in my head. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I feel you. I feel you. Right, let's give it a spin. All right. Uh, here we go. 
number 45. Do you have no, it? No, 42. No worries. Number 45. The question is, was there a catalyst moment in your life that made you pursue acting? Ooh. Um, I would have always been into it. Like, since about nine or ten, I think that's when I started performing in, like, local local productions and all. Um, but if there was a I can do this mm-hmm. moment, uh, when I was in sixth year, myself and my best friend... Uh, what what year did you finish school? Um, what year? Yeah, two thousand twelve. Okay, so you were the year after me. So you had Hamlet as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. So like Hamlet was it was the Leaving Cert Shakespeare for my year and your year. Mm. So it was two years back to back, which which is rare enough. So myself and my best friend at the time, Thomas, he and I, um, we went to our principal and we were like, "Can we direct and stage our own production of Hamlet?" As it's coming back to back. And bizarrely, he said yes. Mm-hmm. And he gave us the money to do it and all. So we did it. We co-directed it. I played Hamlet and he played Claudius. And we just cast it with our mates. We cast it all fifth and sixth years. And it was brilliant. It was the best thing in the world. And we took like loads of things and we cut it ourselves. Like we cut out entire characters and like made it, made it our own thing. But that was the moment. And I was auditioning for the Lear at the same time. And I was auditioning with Hamlet. Um, and I've no doubt in my mind... Cause like there were four other people auditioning with Hamlet like in the same hour as me I was told when I went in that's how popular it is like right. and it was like the exact speech I was doing as well um but the fact that like I had done all the rest of it like that that week or that month yeah. that gave me that added confidence to it and after doing that I I said oh no I I think I can do this I mm-hmm. think I can go further with this um, it did, of course, mean that I went into the first day of college thinking I was Orson fucking Wells. Sure. <laughs> you know, thinking I was the dog's bollocks and was very quickly brought down. Yeah, Which yeah. is for the best, which is always the best. Of course. One of the <laughs> things that interested me earlier in what you were saying was you said um, a lot of guys get into acting with the view to pick up women. Yeah. Which isn't necessarily the worst idea in the world. Well, just like, yeah, it's whatever did get you into it. You know, sure. It doesn't, it doesn't mean it's not, it's still what you do it for. Yeah, you know? no, it doesn't invalidated definitely yeah, yeah. not what was that was that part of it for you or like did you maybe what I'm I wondering because it was interesting oh you were saying something earlier and my basic bitch therapist brain got turned on but like about the you were saying something about oh, I don't know but like what I wondered was was that an experience of like um when love was finally requited or even just affection when it when it finally stopped being unrequited and became requited was that through the context of theater and with theater people or like you know whether that's just in the hamlet like cast of fifth and sixth years or you know through you know some musical you're doing as a teenager um was that the first time that you felt kind of like accepted and like attractive uh, like attractive to the other sex definitely yeah and it's at, and musicals particularly like I hope it won't seem insensitive for me to say um, but when it comes to musical theatre um, straight men are often in the minority absolutely so it is it like so a straight a straight teenager you know doing musicals with loads of girls like it, it is easier than like and that's that was a huge thing then. I did, I was invited down to do a production of Les Mis in Thurlis mm. in Tipperary when I was 18, when I was just out of school. I was just before I went into college. And yeah, I just remember like, that was like, I was like, this is, I feel attractive. I feel wanted by the opposite sex. Like this, mm. 
this is deadly. You know, as I thought yeah. at the time, I was like, this is the best thing in the world. Totally. And it was the same. I did a production of Spring Awakening um, just when I was just out, out of college. And that was equally, it's a great experience, but it was equally debaucherous. Yeah. You know, there's right. something about there's something about the musical theatre environment a lot of the time. Um, I really like my relationship to musicals. Like, I'd consider myself a straight actor very much so. Um, <laughs> straight in the, like, dire- in straight drama yeah, rather yeah, than yeah. Heter- heterosexual acting. Um, but <laughs> um, I think I love having that going to, like Jonathan Price did. Like, he was mm-hmm. always the Shakespearean classical actor, but then he'd go in and do Fagin and Les Mis of the Engineer and Miss Saigon. Like, and he did the best, like... I think the best both both worlds of it, you yeah, know. Yeah, there's a skill to it. Right, we give it another spin. Yeah. All right, here we go. Number thirty-five. Do you have it? I don't. No worries. Number thirty-five. How do you feel about being the age you currently are? Um, I like it. I'm twenty-six now. I turned twenty-six in November. Um, yeah, I've liked I've liked every age like since. Kind of post nineteen, I think I've started like every age has felt like it's been getting better. Mm. Um, twenty, yeah, twenty six is a funny one. Twenty six is so talking of Orson Welles, like Orson Welles was twenty six when he made Citizen Kane. Right, there's always I love those things. Like it was twenty three. I remember when I turned it, someone sent me that like at twenty three. Like Oprah was fired as a journalist, Tina Fey was working at the YMCA and Walt Disney was fired from somewhere for not having enough imagination or something like that. Everything will be okay, yeah. you know? Um but no, I like I like it. I like getting older. Again, getting back to it you feel just more taken seriously as well, you know? Mm. Um i am still constantly being called a young lad and it's that thing definitely is it like people will just be calling you a young lad until one day you turn around and you've always been the old lad (laughs) I feel that that seems to be the happy I don't see any point where someone's like considered just a lad you know you're either a young lad or an old lad it's Mm. like when is that middle point and do you like being do you like when people call you the young lad Uh, not really because it's usually with a sense of uh, condescension like in patronising I have like funnily like um like my brother, my brother is seven years older than me, and Liam Hessen is one of my best friends. He's seven years older than me as well. But Liam is my age, and my brother is is seven years older than me, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you know, and that's yeah. funny that they they were in school the same year, and uh, not in the same school. But uh, I I think that's funny in how you view things. But then I have friends who are only a few years older than me who would call me the young lad and would like. Would, would condescend and patronise me big time and it really annoys me mm. it's something about it and they were like oh I'm only saying you it's like oh it's just because I'm jealous of your youth and all but it is another one of those real cliche sayings like you're as you're as young as you feel you know yeah. there's people like oh god I'm such an owl lad you know yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. totally totally right we have time for one more so oh, let's see what we have alright number 59 do you have it? I don't no worries. Number 59. Have you ever had a near-death experience? Oh, yeah, several. Really? <laughs> I'm disa- I'm a disaster. Um, what? I'll give you the most recent one. Okay. Don't know how much you could call this near-death experience, but it's a good story anyway. Mm. Uh, so we were just on tour in Germany. And so we finished the show like at like half 10, 11. We were in this town where the hotel was right beside the venue, which was great. So afterwards, it would always be the case of trying to find a bar to go to just for a few drinks so we found a bar that was open till five that was quite close by mm. so we had a few drinks in the rooms and then at about one we headed to this bar 
we got in the door and we just immediately realized like oh no this is this is the worst kind of bar this is like a dive of all dive bars it's all older men there is porn on the tv like not even like not even just like babe station not even channel like i'm talking like porn like on several screens and we're like oh dear god so i say listen we can't walk straight out because that would be worse like they'd follow us then so we'll sit down we'll have a couple of drinks and it'll be grand so we sit there and like it's dirt cheap like it's two euro a pint like but everyone's smoking inside and everyone's like it's, they stare at you in Germany like they like I wouldn't have thought like I've fair hair and blue eyes and like pale skin I wouldn't have always thought that I looked especially not German mm-hmm. uh, but no apparently they can spot it a mile away because they just like they stare at you. So after a little while, we have a couple of drinks. We kind of settle in a little bit. Like we go to the bathroom in pairs and we try and play it safe. Yeah. Also, hilarious side note, visually, this was the first day of the tour that I decided to wear my pink repeal jumper. <laughs> so yeah, 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 yeah. now, of course, they wouldn't have known the repeal part. But then I was just this lad wearing this big pink jumper in this really rough bar. So we sit back down and this guy comes over to us and he's like, where? Like, what are you doing here? I'm like, what should I just say? It was like, like this is the last bar you should be in. Like, and we were like, okay, yeah. And he went off. Kind of thought no more about it. I went up to the bar, and this guy started chatting to me. He was like, uh, he was like, are you you like football? I'm like, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't really be into the football. He's like, ah, I love Liverpool. I love Liverpool. I said, oh yeah, you'll never walk alone because I know Rodgers and Hammerstein more than I know football. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he was like, can we exchange phone numbers? I was like. What? It's like asking the barman for a pen and paper, and I was like, write it down, and I just like literally grabbed my drink and walked away. But a few minutes later, like, like six massive lads circle around our table, and there's like four guys, four girls in our in our company at there that night, and they just kind of like some of them sit, some of them stand. We're like, oh no, and they're all just like, what are you doing? And their leader, like this big burly bald guy. He just sits down. He's like, like, what are you doing here? Like, this is the wrong. Turns out we were in a football firm pub. (laughs) So it was like, (laughs) it was a proper, like, hardcore. It's like, do you know, like, this is run by this thing. And at first, when they were saying this name, I thought this was like a, of course, immediately terrible assumption uh, in a rough part of Germany that it was some kind of Nazi thing. I thought we were in, like, one of those, like, Fourth Reich kind of places. Yes. But, like, it, was, it turned out it was just, like, a really hardcore football firm. But then, the like, like the magic wand that it is, they were like, where are you from? And we're like, Ireland. It's like, Ireland? <laughs> and suddenly everyone just relaxes and they're, like, doing, like, no, no, it's grand. It's like, what are you doing here? It's like, we're singers, we're singers. It's like, we sing us something. And we're like oh, this is the last place we should do, but we're like, fuck it, go on, because there's this, like, a cappella uh, Christmas song in German called Ode Frulica, and, like, it's in, like, four-part harmony, and, like, all of a sudden, like, one of the lads starts bawling, crying, and, like, suddenly we're drinking with them for the rest of the night, and we're like, this could have so easily gone so much worse. Oh, man. (laughs) That's a great story. (laughs) It's a good one to finish on, yeah. It was one of those, like, almost like a peep show moment where it's, like, the face-to-face it's going to be, and then, like, cut to, like, everyone singing together. Oh, man, that's good. (laughs) That's good. That could have gone anywhere. It could have. Oh, very easy, yeah. It was a great one once we were out. We were like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it so funny? That's the difference between, like, the end of your life and a great story. Yeah. And, yeah, like, imagine if, I don't know, like, imagine if you said, like, 
I, I like I let, okay, he's a Liverpool fan, and then you're like, oh, we're from Manchester, and they're just like, right, fuck yeah, that, gone. Like, you're yeah. done, you're done, <laughs> whatever the fuck that means, man. This has been deadly. What a chat, good doing this it. Um, great all crack, day. Yeah. Like, thanks so much for doing it. No, thank um, you for having I want to throw it over to you. Um, I know you're very busy with loads of different bits and bobs. Anything yeah. you want to uh, flag for people to keep an eye out for? Um, yeah, I suppose uh, listen to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast, uh, where I talk about uh, where I talk about folklore and Irish mythology, retell in my own words. Uh, good, good crack if you're into that type of thing. Um, and yeah, I don't like if anyone's around America, come and see Celtic Nights and the World of Musicals yeah. on a nationwide tour. If anyone has any relations in America or anything, tell them. and shout out to the wonderful Jamie Reynolds, uh, my childhood oh, yes. best friend, producing your lovely producing podcast. Fireside. Yes, uh, yeah, great it's lad. amazing. Uh, all part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Yes, indeed. What about that for a plug? You cross Ke- cross promotion. Oh man, <laughs> look, we're basically inbred. Yeah, <laughs> Kevin Olin, thank you so much for playing personality. Thank you very Bingo. much. So guys, that was the wonderful Kevin Olihan playing Personality the Bingo with Tom Moore and Kevin. If you're listening, a massive thank you to you for taking the time to do it. I know you're super busy with all the bits and bobs at the moment, but it was a pleasure to sit down and talk to you. Also, check out Kevin's podcast. It's called Fireside. It's also on the Heads Up Podcast Network. Uh, it's an amazing storytelling podcast. Uh, it's produced by my childhood best friend, weirdly enough, Jamie Reynolds, who does an amazing job. There's so much beautiful ambiance uh, and kind of camp fire vibes to it it's really gorgeous and I really recommend you go and check that out as I said guys the Patreon page is live as you listen the link is in the show notes it's going to be across all my social media I'm going to make an effort to push it for the next while um, it's the kind of thing that hopefully will get to a point where it is self-sustaining but as Blind Boy says it's a model based off soundness I never want to put pressure on anyone who can't afford it to do it but if you are in a position where a couple of euro wouldn't make a difference uh, massively in your life it really would in mine uh, in the sense that if we get a couple of people going with this it just would make um, the kind of expenses of this show look after themselves um, and after 104 episodes it just seemed like the right time to try it so I'm going to leave that there with you and um, we'll monitor progress I suppose uh, over the next little uh, while a few thank yous as always to the boss woman the brilliant Erin Lindsay for mixing, et- mixing editing and producing this podcast also to the wonderful Connor Nolan for his deadly artwork to Leah Moore and Anthony Manley for the beautiful theme music and to the lads Paddy O'Leary and Alan Bennett for having us aboard the Head Stuff Podcast Network. I'm going to leave it there, guys. Um, but what an episode with Kevin. And I will see you next week when Sean Carey plays Personality Bingo with Tom Moran.